Welcome to the Personal Injury Marketing Minute, where we quickly cover the hot topics in the legal marketing world. I'm your host, Lindsay Busfield. Tom Wagstaff, a nursing home abuse lawyer from Kansas City, recently joined us to give us an overview of nursing home abuse cases. Some of the most interesting and sadly most tragic cases that Tom sees are elopement cases. Today, we're going to spend some time delving a bit deeper into the legal nuances and challenges of elopement cases. Thanks for joining us again, Tom. You bet. I'm so glad to be here and talk about elopement in long-term care. Well, let's start with the basics. What is elopement? Okay, so um, so the definition of elopement, um, there's a couple definitions. Uh, one, one place to look is CMS or Medicare. The way they define it is when a resident leaves the premises or a safe area without authorization and or any necessary supervision to do so. Uh, that, that's a definition from Medicare. Uh, Joint Commission uh, defines it as when a patient wanders away, walks away, runs away, escapes, or otherwise leaves the hospital, or in this case, the nursing home, unsupervised, unnoticed, and or prior to their scheduled discharge. Um, there, there's other definitions such as the act of leaving a safe area unsupervised and unnoticed and entering into harm's way. So basically what it is, Lindsay, is when you have a nursing home resident who's living at the facility or an assisted living facility or any type of long-term care facility and the resident leaves the facility, the building, when they're not supposed to with nobody knowing and it's unsupervised and nobody's with them. So they're, they're basically going out into the elements on their own with no supervision and they're really not equipped to do it. So bad things happen. Yeah, that is clearly an incredibly dangerous situation, um, mm -hmm. especially if you have a long-term care facility mm -hmm. resident mm -hmm. um, going out. Yeah, there's traffic outside. There's wilderness outside. They clearly have a medical need to be supervised, yeah. and that can easily lead to a horrible situation. Um, so what are some of the reasons that elopement happens? So when, when you look at these cases, um, there's a couple categories that come up. One is uh, a failure to assess the resident. So what I mean by that is upon admission to the facility, um, and again, when I'm talking about the facility, I'm talking about a skilled nursing home or an assisted living facility or a residential care facility. So upon admission uh, or upon readmission, uh, they need to assess. They need to do some type of uh, assessment for an elopement risk. And frankly, they should do that pre-admission as well. So it's a failure to assess pre-admission when they go out to the resident's home or the resident comes into the facility and they get to know the resident. And then when the resident is actually admitted, they should do a similar type of assessment where they're assessing whether or not they're a low risk, moderate risk, or high risk for elopement. Uh, and some of the things that go into that are, are their prior elopements, What's their diagnosis? Do they have dementia, Alzheimer's, delusions, hallucinations, anxiety disorder, depression? All of those factor into that. Um, do they ambulate independently? Um, were they recently admitted? What kind of medications were they on? What kind of decision makers are there? Or is the person, um, those, do they wander uh, in the facility? So all of that would go into uh, an assessment. And the question is, did they accurately do it? Did they correctly assess the resident as being an elopement risk? Another is a failure to plan. 
which is which is a situation where maybe they assessed the resident correctly, but they didn't plan correctly. So, you know, in these situations, you need to alert the staff. Uh, you need to do frequent checks. You need to make sure there's a secured unit. Uh, uh, you need to do a patient-centered plan of care, just not a generic plan of care, but one that's actually specific to the resident and to their needs uh, and desires. Um, a behavior monitoring log oftentimes is something that is part of the plan. Uh, GPS bracelets, door alarms, I could probably go on and on, but, but those are all parts of plans. And, and so there's a failure to create a good plan is why it gets out. Another is a failure to execute the plan. So when those things are in place, they're, they're failing to actually do them, perform them. Um, what, what you see most of the time, Lindsay, is a systemic issue where it's not just one thing, it's a multitude of things. And frankly, it's, it's a ticking time bomb oftentimes. Um, two other areas that, that come into play are understaffing uh, when they don't have enough people working and a lack of training. When, when they're taking on residents who have certain diagnoses uh, like Alzheimer's or dementia, but they're really not trained to deal with the behavioral concerns that come with them. Um, the one last thing that causes this or plays into it is, is not just creating a plan to prevent, but also creating a plan once it happens to find the person uh, in enough time to keep them out of harm's way. And, and so it's it's important that these facilities have proper search and rescue plans. So uh, the the failure, the, the the negligence comes in one of those areas, and that's why it happens. And you can see the negligence happening in multitudes of those areas. And going back to the beginning, when you're mm -hmm. you know, discussing doing the pre-assessment before mm -hmm. they even get to the facility, mm -hmm. you want to make sure that if you are bringing on an additional person who might be an elopement risk, mm -hmm. you have enough staff to mm -hmm. monitor that and mm -hmm. to enforce the plan that they have in place. Because if mm -hmm. they don't start at the beginning of that plan, if there's any negligence there, mm -hmm. it can just trickle down until they create a catastrophic situation for themselves. Yeah, I had a case where, uh, and we can talk about this maybe a little later, but part of the case dealt with the pre-admission screening uh, into an assisted living facility where they went out to the to my client's house and appropriately did a pre-admission screening, but they didn't do a great job of it or they looked the other way. And, and they were told that she had uh, eloped from her house before. They were told that she wore a GPS tracking bracelet, but then they admitted her without the bracelet. They admitted her without the GPS tracking bracelet. And sure enough, she got out. And when she got out, she didn't have the bracelet on, so they didn't know where she was. Oh, so that's, that's an example of, of, of a breakdown in the pre-admission screening. Right. They were clearly just going through the motions, but mm -hmm. weren't taking action on on what they were seeing and, mm -hmm. and what the actual results mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's a, a real challenge. Um, and I mean, clearly you've seen a ton of these cases. Um, do you have any stories of other elopement cases that you've seen? I, I do. I, I There's three stories that come to mind because each is in, in a different level of care. Um, and what I mean by that is in these long-term care cases, um, you have different acuity levels and you have different types of facilities uh, and they have different rules and they have different regulations like a skilled nursing home would be the most, the highest level of acuity and then assisted living and residential care would, would be a knockdown and knockdown from there. So the first case that, that comes to mind is a case I handled a while back and it was in a skilled nursing home. 
it was here in the Kansas City area on the north part of town, and it dealt with a a great family, a gentleman who was in his mid seventies, who who had all his faculties except his mind. Uh, he, he he he, as an example, he he could probably, I would guess at the time, drive a car, and he'd know how to drive it, and he'd probably do just fine driving it. But he'd end up if he was in Kansas City, he'd end up in Texas. Um, he just didn't have his mind and he and he didn't really have a handle on on person, place and time and where he was. His wife had been caring for him for a number of years as the caregiver and it was starting to wear on her and it was starting to affect her health. And so she ultimately gave in and placed him in a long term care facility in a skilled nursing home uh, close by to her house. Well, um, she was told that they would keep him safe. She was told that they would protect him. Uh, and that's something that can't be overlooked in any of these cases, uh, is one of the charges of a long-term care facility is to keep their residents safe, is to protect their residents. And she was told that. And um, she was also told that they had a secured unit. She was told that the doors would be locked. She, she was told that the doors would be alarmed. She was told that they would supervise him and watch out after him. Well, it, it, not too long after he was there, uh, he went out uh, a side exit door uh, that was unlocked and unalarmed and found his way to the employee smoke patio where the fence surrounding it had been taken down by the, I think the maintenance man or the activities director for several different reasons, but it was down. And he walked through that opening in the fence and um, he found his way to a creek about two miles away on a hot day. It was in the hundred, it was probably around a hundred degrees in, Can in the Kansas City area. And, and later that evening, the Kansas City, Missouri PD search and rescue team found him in a creek face down where he'd fallen and drowned to death. Oh no. And, and so that's an example uh, of a case and, and I'll probably touch on it a little bit later about why that happened. Uh, but in, in short, one of the one of the things that, that happened there, besides the misrepresentations, uh, was the person who was supposed to be responsible for him uh, had left the building uh, and, and chosen to go get some food. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's an example in a skilled nursing home. Uh, I recently got finished a case uh, of somebody in, a, in an assisted living facility where um, that's one I touched on earlier where she, uh, about the pre-admission screening example. Right. And, and she um, had been, uh, her, her husband uh, wanted, um, wanted a break because again, he was the primary caregiver and, and it's hard. It's, it's hard so work. hard. Yeah. yeah, it's hard work to care for somebody. They, they almost, uh, when, when you, all of these people who elope, most of them have Alzheimer's and dementia and, and I call it the, the circle of life. They're starting to resort back to being a kid. They're starting to resort back to needing full-time care, meaning just somebody to look out after them. They're, they're dependent. They're vulnerable people. And, and so in this case, uh, he, he wanted to go see uh, some, his, his, uh, their son uh, and grandkids uh, out of state and uh, wanted to test the waters. And so he found some respite care at an assisted living facility for a two to three day stretch. So respite meaning short-term stay. 
Right. It, it, was, it was just to kind of babysit. And, and he was using it as an opportunity to, to test it out, to see if they'd do a good job, to see if he'd like it. And more importantly, to see if his wife uh, would like it. Well, one of the things they did not do is, is she had been using a GPS tracking bracelet at home and they they chose the facility chose to admit her without that. And, and then they didn't introduce. Remember earlier, I said it's important for staff to all know who's in the building and what their needs are. Well, they didn't introduce her uh, to the staff. Staff didn't know she was a resident. Three hours after being there, um, she opened a back exit door and the alarm sounded, which is good. Uh, but the staff member who came to the sound of the alarm didn't know she was a resident and uh, thought she was just visiting the facility and uh, allowed her to continue to go outside. And then the staff member shut the door and there was no reentry from the outside and turned back, turned off the alarm and turned it back on and went back to what she was doing. She was found about two weeks later in the woods nearby and uh, she had uh, passed away from heat exhaustion and, and the animals had gotten to her. Uh, and, and then the third example is, is, a, is a case I dealt with uh, where it was in a residential care facility and uh, which is the lowest of acuity levels where, where, where they, they have the most, they're supposed to have the most degree of independence, right? And uh, my client got out of the facility at night and found her way to a pond that was right behind the facility. And she walked into it and drowned to death. And really the significance of that story is there was no barrier, there was no protection from, from the exit door to the pond uh, with such a vulnerable population. So um, those are three examples of cases. As you can see, they're, they're tragic cases, they're sad cases. And, and and often and they're very foreseeable and preventable cases. And they are. And what what is so hard with these cases from from what I'm hearing is they're small mistakes. Yeah. Somebody went out and grabbed lunch. They were hungry, but mm -hmm. they didn't, you know, make sure that they had coverage. Somebody mm -hmm. else thought that, you know, somebody was just going out the back door, found the wrong door, you know, have a great day. Yeah, and they they didn't think that they were doing anything horrendously wrong. Mm -hmm. And in the third case, there wasn't something proper set up. They mm -hmm. clearly had a uh, you know a pond in the back. They thought that was pretty. They didn't want to obscure it with uh, you know a barrier. And everybody thought that they were doing the right thing or something that was completely innocuous. Mm -hmm. And it can have devastating consequences if they aren't abiding by procedures and laws that are in place to make sure that everybody's protected. And it turns into a heartbreaking situation, both for the victim who is suffering through heat exhaustion or drowning, which are horrendous ways to go, especially if you don't have your mental uh, capabilities about you, but also for those families who think that they have um, put somebody that they love the most into a care facility where some where they're going to be protected and protected more so than that individual could have done by themselves. So in, in all of these cases, they're, they're heart-wrenching. Um, and uh, so when you are looking at one of these cases, um, after the fact, you can see what happened. But how do you go about investigating elopement cases to determine the liability or what exactly went wrong and ultimately hold the nursing home accountable? Well, it's, it's a great question. So um, first of all, you got you to gotta collect the facility records. 
um, which which I think goes without saying. Um, and, and that's going to tell you a lot about uh, what was at least charted with respect to the care and treatment. It's going to speak to, did they do a proper assessment? Did they do an assessment? Did they create a plan? What was their plan? And then you're going to be able to look at those three things. Was, was there a failure to assess? Was there a failure to plan? Was there a failure to ex execute the plan? So, so that's one thing we do. The, the, another item we do is, is we get the uh, we collect and request the investigative records from the state agency. So like in Missouri, it would be the Missouri Department of Aging. In Kansas, it would be KDADS. Um, and each state has its own agency where they're going to, in a situation like this, when something like this happens, uh, in my experience, the state division of aging is always contacted and they do an investigation. And so they're going to send some, some people out there to interview staff, to review policies, to look at records, to talk to family. It's a good blueprint on the front end of what the story likely will be. So that's something we do. We also look uh, at the records that we get from the state licensing agency on the particular facility. So we can learn if it's a skilled facility, an assisted living facility, residential care facility, et cetera, and to see if there's a management company involved. Because oftentimes the proper defendants in these cases, uh, two of them oftentimes will be the operator of the facility. And the second one oftentimes will be the manager of the facility. And so you'll get the names of those companies oftentimes from these agents, from these licensing records. So we'll collect those records. Law enforcement's involved, state coroners involved, medical examiners involved most of the time in these cases. So those are important records to get. We get to know the family because so often in these cases, I mean, this is true about any case, but in these cases in particular, you know, you're, you're going to get a lot more value out of the cases if the family was involved. And if the family did their part, and if the family made the right decisions in sending their loved one to the facility, so it's important to talk to them, talk to them, learn their part of the story. Like in the case I told you about, that first case in a skilled nursing facility, you know, my client's wife, she was great. She came to all the depositions, and and she had written about a, no kidding, a thirty or forty page journal, um, which we ended up producing. And it was, it was excellent. You know, it told the whole story. So we get to know the family. We work with experts. Um, um, and, and, uh, and, and also when, when we're talking to the family and we're looking at the records, we're trying to evaluate, is there any fault on the decedent? Is there any fault on our clients, the family members that have survived the decedent? Uh, is there any fault on outside providers? Like, is this a doctor situation where the doctor was involved? Um, you know, and for example, in the case down in, um, well, the second case I told you about that involved an assisted living facility, uh, one of the situations that arose in that case was why was our client, the person who passed away in an assisted living facility versus a skilled nursing facility? Why was she in that type of acuity level? Well, the doctor uh, was part of that, was, was, arguably part of that decision. So we had to go through that pro and we, we did not bring the doctor into the case and I'm glad we did not, but you have to evaluate what's the doctor's role in this decision to admit. Um, most of the time it's a facility decision. Um, and in 
in addition to evaluating the neglect of the facility, in addition to evaluating any fault of our clients, we also look at premises liability claims. We also look at misrepresentation claims. The premises liability claims would, would arise out of they didn't have door alarms or the alarms weren't working, things along, or the fence was down, uh, the fence was broken, things like that. The misrepresentation claims, whether it's negligent misrepresentation or fraudulent misrepresentation claims, are going to arise out of what was represented to our clients. What, what what brochures were given to them, what marketing materials were given to them, what they were told, what they saw, those kind of things. And so all of that goes into trying to evaluate these cases on the front end, um, and then it just continues from there. So I hope that answers your question. It does. And it sounds like it's an incredibly in-depth in investigative process, um, which in some ways makes it different from a lot of the more straightforward personal injury cases that are out there. Um, but, you know, as you deal with, you know, as these often turn out to be wrongful death cases, um, it's it's a, a little bit of a different process. Um, but that's also true, not just about the investigation, but also about the settlements of the case. Yeah. Um, you know, in a traditional wrongful death case, the settlement would generally include loss of income and other financial damages, but that doesn't seem like it would necessarily be true when it involves a senior citizen. So how are wrongful death settlements uh, for elopement cases calculated? So good question. So the short answer is the damage model is definitely different. And you have to get used to that and you have to understand it. It's not any worse. It's not any better. It's just different. Um, and what I mean by that is most likely there are going to be no economic damages. Uh, there's most likely not going to be any lost income, past uh, lost income. Uh, most likely there's not going to be any medical bills that are claimed because it happened so quickly and there is no medical treatment involved. So the situation you're going to be presented with is going to be uh, a, a damage model that is based on non-economic damages. And the way that's going to create significant value, at least from my experience, is to uh, explore and hopefully work up the bad conduct of the defendant facility. And that's going to uh, increase the compensatory non-economic damages and, and it, it, it possibly could get to the threshold of punitive damages. Um, so it's the conduct and the story and the likability of the surviving family that's really going to drive the value of the case. It, it is important for that reason to know the tort law in the state where the case is being brought. And what I mean by that is the damage caps, um, because to some extent, the defense will throw that at you. Um, and that's why it's important to explore the premises liability, the misrepresentation piece of the case to find avenues that are credible to get around damage caps um, and, and go from there. For example, the, the, the first case I told you about um, uh, with, with my client George getting out of the facility, uh, the skilled nursing home in the Kansas City area where he ultimately was found in a creek and drowned to death. Uh, that that resulted in a in a resolution after many depositions, uh, but before trial of a number well in excess of the caps in the state of Missouri. So 
Um, you need to be aware of the caps. You need to know how to manage the damage caps um, and, and hopefully um, go from there because most adjusters will argue that they're capped cases. I strongly disagree with that, but most adjusters will take that position. And I mean, clearly there's no amount of money that will ever, you know, undo the damage and the trauma for the surviving victims. Uh, right. It's a horrible and, way to go, isn't it? Oh gosh, I unimaginable. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, and clearly there are some some challenges and complexities um, with that, with those damage caps. Um, are there other uh, complexities associated with proving negligence and elopement cases um, as compared to other types of nursing home abuse cases? So I think the main challenge in, in proving the liability in these cases, um, and, and so I'm talking about the liability, is, is finding what I would call the safety reason as to why it happened. Because these cases, um, I think more so than a lot of cases, are truly about safety and protection. And so the key is finding the safety reasons why this occurred. And, and he, he, here's what I mean by that. It, it, going back to the cases I told you about is um, with that skilled nursing home case with George who got out of the facility through an unlocked unalarmed door and was found in the creek where he had been, where he was found uh, deceased. Um, it was probably on the 25th or 22nd, 23rd deposition where I learned for the first time that the worker who was responsible for him, who was assigned to him at the time, had chosen to leave the facility to go through a fast food restaurant. Uh, and she was in the drive-through line when this happened. So um, that's finding the safety reason why this happened. That's why, that's one of the reasons why this happened. There was also an unlocked door, an alarm door, the fence was down. In that particular case, those are all examples of finding the reasons why this happened. And it can take some persistence. It can take some effort to get to those answers. Um, and, and, and Or it could be as easy as that last case I told you about where it was in a residential care facility where the safety reason was is there's a pond behind the facility. And, and it, it's kind of staring us all in the face, right? And, and there was no fence, there was no barrier. The person was just able to walk right out there. So um, it, it's a case by case basis, but I think, I think that's the challenge. And then when you get into the premises liability cases, um, you know, that you just gotta be familiar with the regulations at that point. Right, it sounds like you need to really understand what questions to ask and look at the entire chain of what broke down and where and and figure out the exact points. Because, you know, in, in the case that you were talking about with George, I mean, if his person who was responsible for him had been there, he wouldn't have gotten to the back door. Even if she hadn't been there and he got to the back door, there should have been an alarm. If right. there was an alarm, there should have been a fence. And there right. are all of these different thresholds that should have been in place to keep this from happening. And it was a perfect storm of all of these things um, that led to that horribly tragic outcome. It, it is, you know, I think the driving force when, when trying to prove liability in these cases is, 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 you know, two tenets that come to mind are one, this, this just should not happen. And in, in the facility's job is to keep them safe. The nursing home's job is to keep them safe. And that's why they're there. Yeah. And, and, and so if this happens, obviously they're not doing their job. 
And so the, qu the question then becomes, well, what are the specific breakdowns? Right. And you have to look at what is the worst case scenario given what we have in place right now? Because mm -hmm. if there is a worst case scenario that can happen, it, it's going to happen eventually. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, and then the question becomes, you know, you know, then the question becomes, why did the breakdowns happen? And that's something that oftentimes needs to get explored in certain cases, which kind of is the case within the case, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, the, the case itself is, why did this happen? The case itself is the the door was unlocked. The case itself is the door was unalarmed. The case itself is the worker went to the fast food restaurant. But the case within the case is why was the facility understaffed? Why did they choose to admit George? You know, or so that goes to that theme of are they putting profit over the safety of the residents, and are they not staffing? the facility appropriately because it costs too much money or things along those lines. And so that's more the case within the case. And that those items don't exist within every case, but in certain cases, they're def definitely worthy of exploring. And that's when you're gonna get into uh, taking depositions and doing discovery outside of the facility level and more at the ownership level, if that makes any sense to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, moving moving a little bit further into this, uh, and actually talking a little bit about yeah. what we've mentioned so far, um, what preventative measures can nursing homes put into place to stop these elopements from happening? Yeah, so it's a great question because these each of these cases I've talked about are definitely, in my opinion, preventable. So the question is that, what can they do to prevent it? The first that comes to mind is what I said earlier, which is a comprehensive person-centered care plan. So it's not a care plan that's just generic. You know, it's a, it's a care plan uh, that has interventions that deal specifically with that resident and specifically with the needs and the behaviors of that resident. And so that's the first thing they can do. Do a proper assessment, which is part of that. Um, uh, Create a missing person, a miss, a missing person card that has the resident's picture on it and information on it in case the resident gets out. So they can give that to law enforcement. They can give that to uh, staff to help go find the resident. Um, regular checks on the resident. So checking every 15 minutes or checking every 30 minutes on the resident. Um, interventions such as a GPS bracelet. Uh, or keeping the resident involved in activities, or placing a fence around the property. Um, not necessarily locked doors, but coded doors, you know, keypad doors um, that provide a sense of security and alarms on the doors and making sure all that works. Because so many times these facilities might have that, but the maintenance on it may not be up to par and, and they may not be working. Um, secured windows, a good search and rescue plan um, that involves a timely response, that involves notifying family, that involves notifying law enforcement, that involves uh, notifying the silver alert system, which is a system nationwide for missing persons uh, that fit into this demographic. Um, so uh, they should have all of those items in place and, and really also knowing um, high risk situations, you know, new admissions, uh, meal time, shift change, 
uh, night shifts. Those are high-risk situations when residents may be left unattended to. So um, those are those are some examples of things that can be done. Those are some really great safeguards. And, uh, and clearly these cases are very in-depth. They are very complex, um, but they can be rewarding both, you know, as a lawyer financially, but also emotionally. I know that, you know, I'm very happy to know that there are lawyers like you who truly care about the victims, all of the victims involved in, in these types of situations. And there are other lawyers out there who are interested in getting involved with these types of cases. Um, do you have any tips for lawyers who might be interested in taking on elopement cases? Yeah, I, I'm happy to, and, and it's it's probably stuff that that's pretty obvious, but I think it's important to get to know the family in these cases. Um, it's it's important to include the family in in the process in these cases. Uh, it's important to understand that the unique damage model to this type of case does have significant value if it's worked up correctly, um, and it's important to understand the different types of facilities, meaning the different acuity levels and what that means from a state regulatory standpoint. Um, and, and so I'm talking about assisted living, skilled nursing, residential care, those types, those types of, of places. Um, and and I, I think it's important to understand that um, that these are preventable and foreseeable situations. And when you're working up the case, keep those words in mind, because I think a lot of good can come out of trying to show that they're foreseeable, to show that they're preventable, because I think even the staff workers at these facilities will ultimately agree to those concepts. Absolutely, especially if they're there for the right reasons. Yes. I mean, everybody yeah. wants to work together to prevent these. And and, and that's the other thing is, is you'll see that, that if you have a likable family and, and survivors, the staff is gonna wanna help. Um, they're not going to necessarily want to ride that party line. And the other thing that's important to do, if you can in the state that you're working in, is is if if, if the law allows it, is to reach is to find out the names and contact information for former employees, because it's a pretty transient population, a lot of turnover in these facilities, and so. Um, if, if you're in a state that allows it, I strongly encourage you to contact. Uh, and speak with um, former CNAs, former RNs, former charge nurses, former care plan coordinators who were involved in the care and treatment at issue and they no longer work there and they can talk to you about it offline. Absolutely. I think that that's a, a great tip. I was actually reading reviews of a nursing home not too long ago. And in one of the Google reviews that they had, it was a former worker who said, do not go here. Um, I just yeah. left this facility a few months ago. Um, there are lots of workers there who are on drugs and it's a horrible yep. place to work. Management's terrible. Um, and that would be a good person to get information from. Uh, yeah, regarding these cases, that way you can get some of the details from somebody who isn't afraid of losing their job there because they've already left for for reasons that were absolutely horrible. It, it, that's a great idea because you can on all these facilities they have Facebook pages, and and what you will see is what you just talked about, which is former employees or even current employees will provide a lot of negative feedback, and and you can see that in the comment section, and, and that gives you a good opportunity. To, to learn about it. To, to that same point, you know, a, a good tip would be to collect um, 
state uh, complaint and investigation records on the facility for about the two years prior. And you can do that through the state agency. And what that'll do is that'll tell you if they've had prior elopements. It'll tell you if it just it, it'll just give you a sense of uh, are they a good or a bad facility. Right. Is this a one-off uh, yeah. incident or do they have a history of incidents mm -hmm. and they just haven't addressed the internal problems? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's well, that's right. great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your tips and all of this information. I really appreciate you coming back on the show. You bet. I, I'm glad that, to be back. And as always, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom.